Welcome to Washington Today for February 20th, 2023. I'm Gary Sterkoff. Thanks a lot for listening today. The show will be back in its traditional format on Tuesday, February 21st. But today, C-SPAN recently interviewed more than half of the 80 freshman members of Congress. We talked to them about their backgrounds, their careers, and their political philosophy. Today, we bring you eight of these interviews. You can find all of them at cspan.org. Republican Nathaniel Moran is the new member representing the 1st Congressional District of Texas in the 118th Congress. He told C-SPAN about how seeing Ronald Reagan running for president sparked his own love of politics and why he studied Russian in college and how his parents ended up raising him on the campus of a Bible college in Texas. In about 1976, my parents moved from Arizona to East Texas to help start a Bible college there in Southern Smith County. I was just shy of being two years old at the time, but me and my three brothers uh, packed up in a car with my parents and uh, moved across half the country to help start a Bible college in East Texas. It was your family and others. What was the idea? Well, the the idea really is to follow that great commandment in Matthew 22, that that commandment of loving God and loving others, and that's really about serving God and serving others. And my parents uh, were involved in ministry for many years, and so this was just their opportunity to help start something new in uh, the central United States in East Texas and help build that ministry and other families going forward. How did that mission shape the man today? Well, for me, it really modeled that Matthew 22 uh, great commandment. But growing up on a Bible college campus was fantastic because you got the energy of young college students. You got to be around so much activity, but you got to see others really giving to their communities, uh, learning about scripture and dedicated to a life of faithful service to Jesus Christ. What sticks with you today from that time or from your faith? Well, for me, uh, that opportunity as a young boy was fantastic for a number of reasons. And I still tell my kids these stories today because we got to roam the woods. We had these county roads that we went uh, down every which way and and, uh, shot our our guns off the the bridges and and, uh, and, in in the woods and had a wonderful time just growing up, uh, really being able to explore and live an independent life and figure life out on your set, uh, on your on your own. Now we had, you know, we had a clothesline in the backyard and where we played football, we climbed trees. We we did all the things that uh, young men and women in the country you would expect to do. And along the way, uh, four broken bones and a lot of bruises. When did you first become interested in politics? Well, it really was in 1984 when um, after. Uh, we had established ourselves in the in the really big city of White House, Texas, just a little small town, uh, not far from that uh, Bible college. My my dad uh, helped bring me through that pathway of watching uh, Ronald Reagan run for uh, his second term in office, 1984. And as we went through that journey together, and we did a mock election in elementary school, I still remember that to this day. I cast my ballot for President Reagan in that fourth grade classroom. That's what began to instill a love of public service. And my dad modeled that. He was a small town mayor growing up. But really, you know, that's just about giving back to your community. It's not about a holding a position of authority. It's, it's really about how can you serve those around you. And it started there in White House, Texas. What do you remember your father telling you about why Ronald Reagan should be president? Well, 
simply because you know we're talking about liberty we're talking about taking government out of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis so that we can make good decisions for ourselves for our businesses so we can have opportunities to work hard and have those good decisions create opportunities that's really what it's about government most of the time gets in the way and if we can get government out of the way people are left to being able to make their own decisions and see those decisions bear fruits down the road my dad did that when we were in White House he started a business out of out of our garage. It was just him and a little vending truck and a bunch of candy and chips and, and cookies in our in our garage. He started a little vending company, got up every morning no later than 4 a.m. And by the time 30 years had passed, he and my older brother had grown that business to a, to a large regional vending company. But it took years, in fact, decades of hard work. Tell us about your education. I started my educational um, uh, adventure at the United States Military Academy at West Point. St was there for two years. Loved that time there. Uh, those two years were invaluable to shape who I was. Those, that moniker of duty, honor, country really was instilled in my heart and still guides me to this day as to who I am and what I want to become long term. Uh, ultimately, I decided to pursue a civilian career and so I transferred to Texas Tech University. Got a Russian degree. Uh, finished my Russian degree there, started that actually at, at West Point, and then also got an MBA and a law degree and began practicing law after I left Texas Tech in 2002. But I wouldn't give up that time either at the Military Academy or Texas Tech for anything. Both truly shaped who I am today. Why study Russian? Well, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said about understanding other cultures. We understanding not just uh, the Russian culture, but other cultur cultures worldwide, and, and knowing how we need to interface with those cultures, uh, understanding that our perspective is not the only perspective, but truly, we see today, and who knew back then that that's, that area of study would be so important today, uh, but understanding in, in some senses, hey, how do we push back against a foe that's really trying to be imperialistic and, uh, and do some things around the world that they shouldn't be doing. Understanding their culture and their history now is vitally important. When did you start your political career? Well, you know, I, I don't really call it a political career. I really call it a career service. Uh, my first um, elected service position was on the Tyler City Council back in 2005. Um, I remember distinctly my brother-in-law calling me and saying, so now when are you gonna run for your first office? And I thought, you know what, now's the time to do it. And I stepped out and won that first election in, in 2005. Was glad to serve on the city council level and then uh, many years later at the county level. So I've, I've spent both a city and county uh, elected experience, county judge the last six years before I was in Congress. But one of the things I love to talk about in that journey is Right after my second uh, term in office in, in 2009, I left being on the city council. I'd just been reelected to my third term there and was elected as mayor pro tem. But I have an older son that uh, needs uh, needed some special schooling in Houston. He's deaf, and so uh, my family knew we needed to get down to Houston for him. And so we walked away from that and uh, walked away from that time of service to, to build into him that opportunity and to give him the gift of speech. We were incredibly uh, blessed by the Center for Hearing and Speech down in Houston to be able to do that. My son went from being four years old, not speaking at all, to seven years old later, uh, three years later, speaking in full sentences. It was a gift for him for the rest of his life. But we had to walk away from that vocational call of being a, a public servant, never thinking we'd ever be, be able to get back to that time. 
Uh, but in 2012, we moved back to Tyler, just began serving our community again through nonprofits, started an education foundation, tried to do what we could just to help where we could. Boy Scouts, you know, uh, Sunday school, teaching, uh, coaching uh, my little girl's basketball teams, just whatever we could do. Yeah, uh, and then in 2016, became the county judge. You've had lots of titles, Sunday school teacher, trombone player, coach for your daughter's basketball team, church deacon. Which one do you like the best? Oh, you know, I think being being dad is number one, and being coach. Uh, my, my little girls, one of them's not so little anymore. She's almost six feet tall. Uh, they loved calling me coach uh, on the basketball court instead of dad, so they loved that opportunity. And I think I loved coaching that team just about more than any. Uh, and then spending that special time in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts with my older son. And I'm looking forward. My littlest son now is in kindergarten, and I'm looking forward next year when he gets old enough to start playing basketball to start uh, helping with that team and to showing him the ropes as well. How many kids? I've got four kids. My wife and I have been married 23 years. We had uh, our first two who are now 17 and 16. Uh, we had them and then because of, of the need to really focus on my oldest son, we waited eight years and we got him on the right track. We said, hey, let's have some more kids. So now we have a little seven-year-old and a little five-year-old. So we have two boys and two girls. And what was the reaction from your kids when you won this seat and you became a member of Congress? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think back to kind of the, the days of, of campaigning. I tried to involve them as much as I could. Certainly the little ones don't quite understand exactly what's going on. Uh, they love to repeat some of the campaign commercials and, and they're, they're intricately involved in every step of the way and they love being here as part of the swearing in process. I am hopeful that as they grow older, they will see that really what I'm trying to do is to build in an opportunity for them so that one of these days they can have the same opportunity I had, and that is to come from a single wide trailer home on a Bible college campus with parents that didn't have anything more than a Bible college education to being able to achieve anything you want in life by working hard, hard uh, by staying steady with good values, by treating people right and giving back to your community. I think that's the formula to really get somewhere in life. And again, not for ourselves, but for others. I tell people all the time that the point of government is to help people get to prosperity, but prosperity is not the end. Prosperity should really be the middle point. The end point is generosity to others. So that liberty should lead to prosperity, should lead then to generosity to others around us. Greg Landsman is a former public school teacher who is now the Democratic representative for Ohio's first congressional district and one of nearly 80 new House members of the 118th Congress. He talked to C-SPAN about why he attended Harvard's Divinity School, some of his faith-based tattoos, and how he first got into public school teaching before running for Congress. So my parents were uh, school teachers. I grew up, uh, you know, with... Uh, educators and uh, you know with the core belief that everyone has inherent value right and it's up to the adults uh, to bring that value out in children to like make sure they understand just how significant and powerful they are and I was really drawn to that idea in the profession uh, and I love teaching. It's really hard, <laughs> teaching is. And so ultimately I would go on to do uh, education and child advocacy work, including uh, helping to pass a, uh, a ballot measure to provide two years of quality preschool for three and four year olds in Cincinnati. What grade did you teach? So I taught high school, uh, Spanish and remedial math. And was there a, f a phrase or an adage that you said to the kids? Well, you know, the, the one thing I repeated 
I, I tried to repeat over and over with, with my students was this idea of their own power uh, that, you know, as young people, they don't realize just how powerful they are. Even as adults, we forget just how much we can influence somebody else with kindness and compassion. Uh, and conversely, if we're not very nice, you know, that has real implications too in terms of how they're going to behave with other people. And so as a student, if you're really kind to somebody uh, and you lift them up, they're going to turn around and do that to other people. And that can really change a school, right? Like that changes everyone, uh, everyone's day in a good way. And, and, you know, the opposite is true. If you're, you know, mean to somebody that has a ripple effect. And so there's just real power and, and, and appreciating that was something I, I kept, uh, you know, reminding my students. You also have a master's in theology from Harvard Divinity School. Yeah. Explain. So uh, my faith has always been a huge part of who I am. Uh, ever since I can remember, it, it was there. Uh, and I wanted to go to graduate school. I really wanted to be at Harvard. It was something that I had put on my list of things to, to do. Uh, but to study something that would allow me to be a better public servant, right? To immerse myself in something I cared deeply about, which was my faith, and to study it as broadly and comprehensively as I could. Uh, but to do so in the context of a vocational interest, uh, politics and public service. So I got a better sense as to the role religion plays, both internationally um, and here domestically. Uh, in, in, in the good ways that religion can bring us together, help us solve problems, the role that faith-based organizations play uh, in delivering services and lifting people up. Uh, so it was, uh, I think, a really valuable degree, uh, especially for somebody who's going to do public service, uh, and, and, you know, particularly in Congress. <laughs> You wear your faith under your sleeve? Yeah. So, yeah, I have uh, multiple tattoos, um, and each one of them is, is uh, really grounded in my faith. So uh, I have a tattoo here which says believe, and it's the idea that it's a reminder that in order to achieve big things, uh, you really do have to believe in what you're doing in your core. And so it's just, it's, it, it helps me uh, pick and choose where I'm going to spend my time and energy, uh, legislatively and otherwise, uh, so that it's, it's those things that I really believe in. And so I'll, I'll keep at it until I get it done, which is, I think, really important. You have kids as well. Tell us about your family. Uh, so uh, my wife, Sarah, and I have two children. Um, our daughter, Maddie, is almost 13. Uh, her bat mitzvah is in like four or five weeks. So that's something, you know, uh, that we're preparing for. It's a big deal. Uh, and then our son, Elijah, is 11. And so, you know, they got to speak to the president last night. We were invited over to the White House. The, the, the new members were with their spouses. and. I, you know, asked the president if he would say, a, you know, just videotape like a, um, a greeting uh, to my son who, who has a big basketball game on Friday. And he said, well, let's just call him. And so uh, he just FaceTimed the two kids, which was, you know, pretty special.
What did he say to them? He just was asking about him. I mean, you know, he's he, he's a genuinely nice human being, and I think he's interested in other people. And uh, you know, so he was excited to talk to both of them. And it's it, it was it's a really neat thing to share with your family this experience. I mean, there's uh, just such enormous responsibility with this job, uh, particularly now with all of these major uh, things that we're having to tackle. Uh, and to have moments like that where uh, you just get to enjoy this experience with your children and your wife uh, is pretty remarkable. Teenagers typically don't think their parents are cool. Do they think you're cool? I don't know <laughs> if they think I'm cool. I don't think so. I think they appreciate the, the job and the significance of it. Um, particularly when the President of the United States FaceTimes them. I don't think either one of them would say I was cool. <laughs> Have you met some good friends here in Washington, made good friends? Yeah, one of the things the President spoke about last night was when he first came to Congress and it was following this awful tragedy um, uh, and losing his wife and his daughter and he didn't, he didn't expect to stay. He didn't think he was going to stay, but it was the friends he made uh, in those early months uh, that uh, you know, uh, inspired him to keep doing the job. And I, I you know, have met some really remarkable people, uh, particularly in this fr freshman class, that I suspect will be lifelong friends. You're also a boxer. Tell yeah. us about the hobby and, and how has it impacted you? What does it, tell, what does it say about who you are? So counterintuitively, boxing calms most of us down. If you, if you spend time in the gym, uh, which I try to do three or four days a week doing bag work and, and sometimes sparring, you actually you know, spend the rest of the day or week relatively calm. Uh, and so that's what it has done for me more than anything else. I, I you know, keeps me in shape. Uh, it allows me to think it's the one thing in the gym you can't do and be on your phone. So you have to really uh, think um, and get off your phone, which is great. Uh, but it also just uh, has made me a calmer person. And I think calmer folks, at least this has been my experience, uh, are much more compelling and, and, and can communicate more clearly. Aaron Houchin is the Republican now representing Indiana's 9th Congressional District in the 118th Congress and one of its nearly 80 new House members. She told C-SPAN about her work on expanding rural broadband as a state legislator, lessons learned from her failed 2016 House campaign, and her roots in southern Indiana. It's home. It's always been home. I've always lived in the 9th District. I went to the uh, Indiana University, and that's also in the district. So I'm a homegrown uh, Hoosier and happy to be a representative of this part of our state. Where do your conservative roots come from? You know, my parents raised me, um, you know, as a conservative, but growing up, I, I really wasn't, we weren't a political family. I knew where they stood, um, but when I was in college, I really had to do some soul searching on what part of the political spectrum where I found myself. Um, as a senior in college, I interned uh, for the state legislature and the state senate, and I had to decide which side of the aisle I was going to try to uh, serve. Ultimately, for me, it came down to the issue of, of life 
And so that's where I am, and, and also fiscal responsibility. So those two issues pushed me over to the Republican side, and it was really after, you know, in, during, and after college where I really thrived and began my political career. What about the issue of life, and where, do, where did that, that belief system come from? Well, I was raised as a Methodist, um, and so my religious background certainly informs that, um, but also just our Constitution. We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first of those is life, so that really spoke to me, that that is our first inherent right in our Constitution, and that we should try to protect that. What or who sparked your interest in running for public office? Um, a lot of different people influenced that. I had, so being part of the process when I interned, uh, my best teacher I ha ever had was my sixth grade teacher. Um, she recently passed away. Um, but the influence that she had was showing up at the state house, advocating for a bill, uh, a member of my community that I respected, she was advocating for school choice. And ultimately she was successful. Uh, that year, my, when I was an intern, we passed a school choice initiative um, and she was part of that process. So seeing her be able to accomplish something like that and, and being on the sidelines uh, really made me want to be involved in those types of processes in policy making. Fast forward to life happens after that. Uh, I, was a stay I worked in child services for the first half of my career. I was a stay-at-home mom. I got my master's in um, public or political management from the George Washington University. I was at home during that time in Salem, Indiana, raising my kids. Um, I would put my kids to bed at nine and study until three in the morning and get up and be a mom again. Uh, halfway through that program, I got a call from our U.S. Senator asking if I might be interested in interviewing to serve as his regional director. I was on the Republican State Committee as district chairman, so I was known, I guess, in that way. Um, I went up to the interview. My husband said, don't take the job. If they offer it, let's talk about it. Uh, they, they, as they say, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. When your U.S. Senator asks you to serve, you serve. So um, even though I wasn't really ready to go back to work at that time, my youngest child was two. I was hoping to stay home till he went to kindergarten. Um, but I, I took the job. I called my husband on the way home and said they made the offer and I took it. Uh, that is what sparked me on this journey to run for the state senate and now to be in Congress. Tell us about your time in local politics. What would you say you achieved? At the state level? Mm -hmm. um, there were lots of initiatives that we worked on and that I spearheaded at this, in the state legislature. What I tried to do as a representative of my community was look for big gaping system gaps. Where are these system gaps and can I fill that and fix it with a conversation, a policy change, or a law change? With a law change kind of being the last resort. So a couple of things, broadband was a big issue, a lack of access to broadband in my state. Um, so my district was the most unserved part of the state of Indiana. Um, I, in fact, I was speaking to a high school group and said, does anyone know where the most unserved part of the state of Indiana for broadband access is? And a, a senior raised his hand and said, my backyard. So yes, um, my district was really unserved. And I met with stakeholders and, and tried to sort of not go the route of passing a law, um, which ultimately nobody stepped up to the plate because in rural areas of our country, it's a return on investment that often spurs this investment and it's not usually there. Kind of like the rural electric cooperatives when they brought electricity to these parts of our country. So I researched and found that there were two other states that had done broadband grant programs. I 
modeled my legislation after that. So Indiana became the third state in the nation to have a broadband grant program. At the time, we only had $600,000 in the fund that I tapped. Broadband expansion was $50,000 a mile. So even though it wasn't going to go very far, my hope was that if any uh, money came into the state or we found the resources, that we would spend it in the areas that needed it first, most first. And um, after the passage of the bill, the governor invested $150 million. The legislature invested $250 million. And in a few short years, we went from having 17% access to one gig speeds in Indiana to greater than 87% access to one gig speeds. So that is one example. Um, second to that, one of the things I'm most proud of is working um, to help students with disabilities. Our standardized testing um, for students with reading disabilities or even blindness wasn't allowing for a text-to-speech accommodation for state testing. And so I fought for and got um, students with uh, reading disabilities and blindness um, the right to have those accommodations on state testing. It was uh, surprisingly a couple of year battle to get that done um, versus the Department of Education, but we got it done and now kids are getting the accommodations they're entitled to in their individualized education plans. You first ran for a seat in Congress in 2016. You lost. Yes. Tell us about that race and what did it teach you? You know, it taught me a lot and I've talked to, you know, a lot of people will call and say, hey, I'm thinking about running for this office or that office. What are your thoughts? Because I've been through it both as a a winner and a loser. Um, so I went into this process um, in 2016 knowing that it could be a long shot but that I might learn something in the in the mix and I think that's what I took from it the most is I, it made me a better parent, it made me a better business owner, it made me a better uh, public servant. In all of the ways it, it was an improvement over things even in the loss and I think the loss sometimes builds your character. My dad would, would have certainly said that, that will build your character. Um, and it did. Um, I think that, you know, certainly in my viewpoint, I was meant to stay in the Senate for a few more years. And um, we accomplished a lot during those years, like the bills that I've mentioned. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I did it. And if anybody asks me, I always say, you should do it. You should go for it. Because even in losing, even if you don't win, and you have to be okay with not winning, um, even if you don't win, you gain so much from the experience. What do you think your dad would say now that you've won? You know, my dad passed away in 2019 of Parkinson's. Um, it was, he was a dentist. Um, he told me growing up, Aaron, you can be anything you want to be in the world. Just don't be a dentist. <laughs> so, you know, what I learned and gained from him is he didn't like the practice of dentistry, but he loved his patients and he cared about his community. And that's what came through most to me. So I think he would be super proud. I mean. I feel his presence, you know, sort of you know, the pride in, in what we're doing. Um, I think he'd be over the moon excited about having this opportunity to, to serve my state and the nation in this way. Sydney Kamlugger Dove is the Democrat now representing California's 37th Congressional District and one of nearly 80 new faces in the House for the 118th Congress. A former staffer for Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, she talked to C-SPAN about political advice from her former boss, her relationship with her divorced parents, and how she first got into politics. 
Well, I really got my first taste of politics working with my grandmother to help elect Harold Washington as the first black mayor of Chicago. I spent time with my mother on picket lines, uh, learning the history of this country and other uh, world histories as well. And um, I found my way into politics actually quite, um, it was a windy road. I came out to Los Angeles to go to uh, college. I stayed there and then I ended up working on some campaigns and ultimately working with my boss to get her elected uh, into the state legislature and followed in her footsteps and now here I am. Where, on the state level, when and where did you serve? I served at the local level uh, with the Los Angeles Community College Board and then after that I ran for the State Assembly in 2018 and then in 2021 I ran for the State Senate. Both of those happened to be special elections, so I guess I'm a runner. And with Mayor uh, Karen Bass stepping down to actually become the Mayor of Los Angeles, I ran for this seat uh, this election cycle. Any advice she gave you? She said have fun. She said, uh, take a breath. She said, build relationships. And she said, follow your heart and your passion. If there are things that you care about, things about this country that you love and want to protect, if there are communities that you think need to be elevated, lean into all of those experiences and those stories and those successes to help people remember why this country is so great and why it's so important that we fight for it. Have your mom and dad been along for this journey? Yeah, so my dad lives in L.A., so he gives me tips. He calls me on the phone from time to time and tells me to read an article or he gives me tips. My mother sends me these emails on a weekly basis. They're testimonials from her friends that are so excited that I ran for office. And then, of course, they were here to watch me get sworn in, and they were also, you know, seeing the, the sausage not get made uh, for about a week. Um, but they've been so excited, and my mom actually... Uh, wrote me an email not long ago saying that my dad was showing pictures of uh, the apartment where I was born, just talking to strangers in the Capitol. So that really warmed my heart. Proud moment for them when you were sworn in then. I think so. You know, they um, have been divorced for a long time, so now they're friends. And it was great just to hear them hang out together and cry with one another and giggle over the success of their only child. So it made them proud, and it also really humbled me. How was your childhood? What was it, where were you, where'd you grow up? What was it like? Well, I'm originally from Chicago. I was born in Lincoln Park and was raised in Bronzeville and Hyde Park in the South Side, a product of an interracial marriage. My folks were denied housing um, because they were an interracial couple and they had to fight the city to allow them to be in this apartment. I uh, was raised on picket lines. My mother is an actress, so I was also raised in the backstages of theaters uh, across this country. My dad was a social worker, so I would spend time learning about their work and their fights for social justice. I'm a product of the arts, so I believe that artists are some of the most important people in our country. The arts help us heal, understand each other, they elevate our spirits, and so it's so important that I think we invest um, in art and in artists in our communities and that really has sort of guided me on my own journey because while politics is about making sure that there's access to freedom and democracy, it's also about celebrating the diversity in the history of this country and what better way to do that than to elevate the arts. Would that explain why you're a Democrat? <laughs> 
Well, I'm a Democrat because I believe in freedom, and I believe in a woman's right to choose, and I believe that everyone has the right to vote and that the vote should be counted. And I certainly believe in diversity and this amazing diverse tapestry that makes up our country. Um, so I would hope that everyone else would really espouse those same values. And if we all thought that way, we would probably have more bipartisan participation in this thing we call government. Do you have a political mentor? So many. I never met her, but Shirley Chisholm unbought and unbossed, and Barbara Jordan par par paving the way for so many. I have a ceremonial swearing in uh, that will be happening using the Bible of Rosa Parks. So she certainly is an icon. Um, my grandmother for helping me understand the importance of local politics. Karen Bass, LA Supervisor Holly J. Mitchell. There are so many women uh, that I look to for inspiration uh, and also for critique because that's how we get better. Republican Kevin Kiley is the new representative for California's 3rd Congressional District and one of the nearly 80 new House members of the 118th Congress. He told C-SPAN about his candidacy in California's 2021 gubernatorial recall election, his views on the role of government, and his previous work in the state legislature. Well, I've spent the last uh, six years as a member of the California uh, State Assembly trying to bring some uh, sanity uh, to the beautiful state uh, of California. Uh, and, uh, you know, previously I worked as a criminal prosecutor. Um, I was an attorney in private practice uh, fighting for uh, small businesses and defending the Constitution in our courts. And uh, I actually began my career as a high school teacher uh, teaching 10th grade English in inner city L.A. Why a teacher? Well, after college, you know, I was looking for a way to really have uh, an impact in a very uh, immediate way. And my mom was a teacher, uh, and, uh, you know, I've always been drawn uh, to education. And so I was able to uh, begin teaching right away through a program called Teach for America, uh, which places uh, recent college graduates uh, in underserved communities. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I uh, received a teaching credential as I began uh, the process of, uh, of being a 10th grade teacher. I taught at a school called uh, Manual Arts. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a school where uh, there were a lot of challenges uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the reading level that students were at, for example, was uh, on average fifth grade uh, by the time, uh, you know, they entered my 10th grade class. And so, uh, yeah, that experience really uh, opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Uh, to the challenges we face in public education, in assuring educational equity, educational opportunity, uh, in trying to overcome the achievement gaps that are as wide as our state as just about anywhere uh, in the country. And so um, that experience very much informed uh, my uh, role as vice chair of the uh, education committee in our state assembly. And uh, we'll do the same here as I'm now gonna be a member of the education and workforce uh, committee in Congress. What did you learn about yourself being a teacher? <laughs> well, I learned how to be patient. <laughs> you know, uh, I taught 10th uh, graders where there uh, isn't really any limit on class size. So I would teach a class with about 40 students sometimes. I was in a portable, fairly small room. It's 10th graders, so you know, uh, that age, uh, uh, kids can present some interesting uh, scenarios that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, uh, I really learned uh, how to be patient, and I think that has served me well as I've entered the world of politics as well. Why are you a conservative? Well, I tend to believe that uh, decisions are made closest to the folks that they affect. 
and really the lifeblood of our communities are uh, you know family uh, families and uh, small businesses and uh, service organizations faith organizations these are the things that make a community tick and so I tend to believe that the role of government uh, should be one that uh, aims in as much as possible to allow the decisions that drive community life uh, to uh, take place within those institutions. And to the extent the government needs to be involved, it should be at the level that's closest to the folks that it affects. And so the school board level, the level of the city council, the board of supervisors, and the state government should really just be dealing with issues of state concern, and the federal government should really be doing, dealing with issues of federal concern. And I think that's important for a lot of reasons. And perhaps most of all, it's really what this country was about from the beginning is self-government, giving each individual citizen uh, a hand in our uh, shared political destiny and the way to do that is not by centralizing political power in far-off capital buildings it's by allowing for uh, decisions to be made in a way that is accessible to the folks who are affected do you have a political mentor or someone you want to model yourself after well, I'd say there's quite a few, uh, you know, kind of uh, depending on which way you look at it. Abraham Lincoln is always a safe answer, right? <laughs> but uh, I think that, uh, you know, also just uh, a number of uh, our, uh, our founders, uh, whether, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, Jefferson, uh, Hamilton, Madison, um, and the sort of idea of, of self-government that was really the great American uh, innovation that they not only, uh, you know, uh, sort of installed uh, in this country via uh, the Constitution and, and uh, explicated in their various writings, but then uh, instantiated as, as statesmen in the early days of the Republic. Uh, that's sort of the, I think, guiding star of my political philosophy. Uh, I think in many ways that idea of self-government is one that we have drifted from uh, as a country over the years and decades and centuries, uh, but I think it's one that we do well to return to uh, as much as possible in this century. Is there someone or something you were looking forward to doing here in Washington? Well, there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to doing here uh, in Washington. Or someone you were looking forward to meet. Oh. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, there's a number of uh, members of, of Congress that I admire and that I've uh, enjoyed getting to know. Uh, but, you know, really, I'm here to do a job, uh, and that's to help our country get back on track. Uh, at the time I was elected, which is just a couple months ago, uh, you know, we were seeing record levels of dissatisfaction on the part of the public with the direction of this country. When it comes to the economy, uh, when it comes to the border, when it comes to crime, when it comes to the accountability of our government, uh, when it comes to our education system. Uh, and so I'm really here to, to fight for change, uh, to get us back on track. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm interested in meeting and working with anyone on both sides of the aisle uh, who I can find common ground with to make that happen. In 2021, you were a candidate for governor during the California recall election. Tell us why. Well, in 2021, you know, we had uh, this extraordinary movement of uh, citizens throughout California uh, that had come together to produce the single largest, peti largest petition drive uh, ever in United States history, uh, where you know, we had just been in the midst of the most severe lockdowns of any state in the country. California had the most extreme business closures, had the most extreme school closures, had the most extreme church closures. So even if you look at a New York or some of these other states, this wasn't just a debate about whether lockdowns are right or wrong. This was about why is California the 
very worst, the very most extreme in every single respect. And citizens had been denied sort of their ability to actually take part in government at all, uh, as we had what many considered to be a uh, centralization of authority in the hands of the governor. And so the recall became an instrument to sort of fight back and to reassert uh, the, the, uh, the agency of citizens uh, in our democracy. And, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, it also became an, a moment to sort of reflect upon the direction of California as a state, where this used to be the state where anyone could get ahead. Everyone wanted to move there. Now it's the state that so many can't wait to leave behind. It's the most popular state in the country to leave because of soaring costs of living, the highest poverty in the country, huge amounts of inequality, a failing public education system, uh, by far the worst homelessness in the country, soaring crime rates. And so I do think it became sort of a referendum on the fundamental failures of California government. For a variety of reasons, you know, the recall did not ultimately succeed in its uh, immediate objective, but I think it did succeed, succeed in bringing a lot of public awareness to those issues and getting citizens more involved in government. And I think that movement has only continued to grow to this day. Sheila Sherfulis McCormick is the Democrat representing Florida's 20th congressional district and one with slightly more experience than other freshman members of the 118th Congress. She told C-SPAN about her Haitian heritage and about how she arrived on Capitol Hill a year before the 118th Congress convened. Well, I won a special election and I was sworn in on January 18th. So I actually what year? Oh, 2021, 2022, you know, the years are going by fast. Yeah. So I'm like a, a super freshman or, you know, a late sophomore, whatever you call it. Um, so I'm just excited to be here. After being here in that year, I really learned a lot about Congress, how it works, especially in an election year. And so I could feel the difference when you come off an election and you're going into a new Congress. So it's exciting to see the difference of, you know, the whirlwind, what occurs when you have a special election where training is like right there and then, whereas now we're having having like real training and you're seeing the difference, but it's exciting. Do you go through freshman orientation? Yes, we're excited. We're invited to go through freshman orientation. So we can choose which ones we want to go to. And I just saw what we missed out on, right? So there was a lot of us who actually came in last year doing specials. So as we were going together as a group, we're like, man, we actually missed out on all these good things in these training. So at least we get to go now. And how many elections have you been through? So I've had four elections within 10 months. What was that like? Grueling. It was grueling because we were in Congress, learning the legislation, building a team. We were in district actually building. So we have two offices in district, a mobile office, and then we had the campaign that was still running. So we had to do it all at the same time. But I think it was one of the best experiences because really understanding what the needs of the people are and having a pulse on the community that you're serving, it really helped us to like hit the ground running because we were able to add to the conversation of what average Americans were feeling because we were always at their door, always in their face, providing services. So I feel like it was a blessing in disguise. Tell us about your political philosophy. Well, at the heart of it is us living up to the greatness of America, right? And that really comes down to equity, equity, Sorry, can I say it again? Yeah. Okay, so at the end of the day, it really comes out down to us living up to our greatness, right? Which is equality and justice for all. So what we've been really focusing on is making sure that everybody has the opportunity to live the American dream, either through fair immigration processes or processes that being included in the Infrastructure Act and all of the um, implementation that's going on, and making sure that you know we have just 
racial equity is at the forefront and that everyone gets to live equally. And even when it comes to women, that has been such a huge issue when we look at healthcare and rolling back the rights of women and inserting government into a woman's private healthcare decisions. So really pushing our country forward so we can live up to our great potential. Who, do you have a political mentor, that, someone you've looked up to in life? There's been so many that I, I can't even mention. Um, but what's great about being in Congress at this time, we've just had, I've had so much support with the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Progressive Caucus, with so many great leaders there who have really been mentoring and pushing us forward. So that has been an excellent experience, especially at this time. What does it mean to be the only Haitian American elected to Congress? It means a huge responsibility, especially when we're dealing with immigration right now and Haiti's in a crisis. Um, as we move forward, we're looking for more equitable processes for African descendants, um, black migrants, and this is really testing our country on how we're doing that. So I commend the Biden administration with its new pathway to entry. Um, that's a great first step, but we have to start looking at these countries and seeing what the specific issues, especially when it comes to Haiti. Um, as of January 9th, there was no elected officials who were present. So the government now is so fragile because you have no one who's really been elected. Combining that with the humanitarian problems, such as access to health care and even being on the brink of a famine. And when you add that with the um, crime element, which is the gangs that are there, we're realizing that there's a real crisis brewing in Haiti. And that's what's actually pushing the migration issues that we're seeing. Our shores in Florida, we've seen more than five times as many migrants than we usually do. And we're also seeing that being um, replicated at the border. And it's not just Haiti. We're looking at Cuba, who's actually coming. So the whole um, Hispaniola, looking at Latin America, and even South America, we're going through changes. And this is a great time for us to actually um, test our country and make sure that we have an equitable process but we're not sacrificing asylum and allowing people to have a pathway. What committees will you serve on? Foreign Affairs, uh, that should be my committee and I'm excited. I was a permanent member last year and I'm also looking forward for transportation and infrastructure which is also extremely important to us. Um, right now I'm serving as the chair for Di um, diversity and inclusion with the Democratic Women's Caucus and we're going to be focusing heavily on how the monies are being distributed with all these initiatives. Like last year we saw so many different initiatives that were dedicated towards creating jobs, more inclusion and we just want to make sure that women are having their seat at the table, minorities are having their seat at the table, and anyone who isn't a traditional participant in navigating. We want to make sure that every American has that opportunity. Andy Ogles is the Republican representing Tennessee's 5th Congressional District in the 118th Congress. He talked to C-SPAN about how teachers instilled a sense of patriotism within him, his earlier work as a restaurateur, and about his childhood in Franklin, Tennessee, which he now represents in Congress. So I'm a native of uh, Tennessee, and uh, I grew up in Franklin. And of course, now it's, it's one of the it cities uh, in the country. And back then, it was cows and corn. You know, I went to, I really lived in a rural area back then. And but now it's again it's kind of become a metropolitan area. So it's been fascinating to, to watch it grow. And since that time, we moved out to the country to give our children kind of that sense of farm life uh, near the big city. Can you trace your conservative roots back to that time? You know, uh, I'm an Eagle Scout, and so I think, you know, come from a family of law enforcement, firemen, military, uh, again, Eagle Scout. And so I think it was just kind of bred into me to, to love country, to love God, and, and to try to do the right thing. Was there someone or something that sparked your interest in public office? You know, uh, I think I have to give credit to, you know, just teachers along the way. 
uh, for you know really instilling patriotism. And so I'm a big nerd for our founding fathers, uh, and which is part of the reason why we, we had the conversation uh, during the speakers' fight, uh, or really it was about the rules. Explain a little more. Yeah, you know, for me, it was never about an individual. You know, I'll, I'll use the example of Congressman Green, who's a native Tennessee uh, representative, or Jim Jordan, who's a dear friend. If either of those uh, gentlemen had run for speaker, I would still have wanted the same rules package. It was about how does the House of Representatives run, and let's restore the rules today as the way our founding fathers intended, where I can offer an amendment, where we can push back against a Senate omnibus bill. So that's what we fought for. There's also a church-style committee, which allows House representatives to hold rogue agencies accountable for their actions. So you were one of the 20 that did not vote for Kevin McCarthy in those number of rounds, and you're saying it wasn't in opposition to Kevin McCarthy. Not at all. You know, Ke Kevin is, is, is a long-standing member, has served his country, has done a great job of unifying our caucus to lead us forward because we, we all know that the country is, is, is in peril. We know that government is broken, and so we have to have solutions that address those issues. You said it's because you're a big nerd of the Founding Fathers. <laughs> so right. how big of a nerd? I'm a pretty big nerd. In fact, you know, uh, I literally was just on the phone with my wife, and we are talking about, you know, how we might decorate the office and I said I want a picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware in the office and then also uh, the 5th Congressional District is the home of James K. Polk and also Andrew Jackson and so I plan to have their portraits in my office as well just because again that, that homage to our founding fathers and what they fought for and, and the country we live in today because of them. What did you do before you came to Congress? Uh, well, so I, you know, I was an entrepreneur young in my career. Uh, fast forward, you know, kind of my midlife crisis, I was a reserve deputy, so I was in law enforcement, and from there I went into uh, international sex crimes, and I worked in the, the child trafficking fight. Uh, so I, I was chief operating officer for an organization, and we fought child trafficking globally. Uh, from there, I went on to work for Newt Gingrich and David Koch of Koch Industries, uh, became mayor of my community, and now I'm a congressman. So, you know, I studied uh, international relations and economics in college, and it wasn't until really later in my career that I kind of circled back to, to, to work on economics and to be in the position I'm in now. How old are your kids? Uh, 15, 13, and 7. And, you know, true story, funny story, you know, uh, our 7-year-old, you know, he's at that age where he frequently likes to make uh, bathroom breaks. And so, you know, I, I was on C-SPAN a lot, uh, but it, I picked that seat because it was back row, and it was an aisle seat. I had no idea the C-SPAN cameras would be right there all the time. And so it was just by happenstance that, uh, that we were sitting there. And then, of course, the rest is history with the scuffle and everything else that happened. But literally, it was just me trying to be an aware dad of thinking, at some point, I'm going to have to sneak out of here with my child and get him to the restroom. And I just want to go unnoticed. Meanwhile, I'm on camera 24-7. <laughs> it's OK. Did you, what did your? Was it just your seven-year-old in the chamber during the speaker votes, and, and what did what did he think? Uh, all three children uh, and the grandparents and my wife. So the, the adults were in the balcony. Our kids uh, sat next to me, uh, and you know they got to watch history firsthand. And so to you know our children know me as the mayor, um, and you know I was a very outspoken mayor during COVID and fought for the individual liberty. Um, and so they're accustomed to me being me, quite frankly, but to see it play out literally on TV and to know that you're on camera was a very surreal moment for me, but also the family. Do they think you're cool? 
I have no idea. I will say, uh, so one, one of the members gave us a deck of cards, and my son, our middle child, picked out his five favorite members of Congress. I, I did rank in the five. I'll just say that much. That's not bad. That's not bad. Republican Eli Crane now represents Arizona's second congressional district and is one of the nearly 80 new House members of the 118th Congress. He talked to C-SPAN about why he ran for office, the small business he started with his wife, and about his 13 years in the military that led to his service as a Navy SEAL. So not all of those 13 years were in the SEAL teams. I didn't make it through SEAL training on my first try, but I was persistent, I kept at it, and finally made it through the pipeline. I was about a, a SEAL for about eight years, so. Tell us about that experience of trying, Yeah. and then not succeeding the first time, but trying again. Well, you know, they want the best of the best there, and uh, like many candidates that go through that program, you think you're ready, you get, get into that pressure cooker and you find out that you're not, and so, um, like many candidates, I had to go back, you know, spend some time in the fleet, then thankfully I got an opportunity to come back and uh, try again. What did that experience teach you, know, you about yourself? Absolutely. I, th I think uh, adversity is one of the best teachers we can ever have, and it was definitely a blessing for me. It taught me that just because you think you deserve something doesn't mean you do deserve it. And it taught me perseverance and resilience, and so I'm grateful for it. So for those eight years that you were a Navy SEAL, what were your responsibilities and what characteristics from that experience, you know, how, does it, how did it define you? Yeah, well, like a lot of organizations, you start at the bottom. I started as a turret gunner and a machine gunner, and I worked my way up. To the end of my career, I was a lead sniper, a point man, and a lead navigator. And uh, you know, it just taught me accountability. It taught me leadership, teamwork, um, and I think that 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 really translate translated into small business, which is where I went before I came here to Congress. But it translates here as well because in, in this body where there's 435, 434 people, then you have the Senate and the executive branch. You're not going to get anything done by yourself. So if you don't work well with others and if you're not willing to humble yourself and listen to other people you're probably not going to get a lot done here. What's the transition like for a Navy SEAL to civilian life? You know it can be difficult you know because you come from an environment where you know uh, it's very very high speed there's a lot of pressure there's uh, you know there, you're not allowed to make a lot of excuses if you will and you come into the civilian sector and it's it's very different but um, like I said, it, it was a blessing. Me and my wife got to start a small company where we made all of our products in the USA. So I kind of went from you know something that challenged me to something else that challenged me. And it had mission incorporated into it. And that's always been a big deal for me. And it's one of the reasons I've, I'm here with you guys now. Tell us about the business that you started. Yes, ma'am. It was called Bottle Breacher. It was featured on, I think, season six of Shark Tank. We got a deal with Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary. And it was just... It was an honor because, uh, like I said, we were able to manufacture a product here. We were able to provide for our family, but we were able to provide for other families. And I got to see firsthand how difficult it is to manufacture things in the United States. And that, you know, that definitely plays into um, things that I care about, uh, small business, manufacturing in the USA, making sure that you know, we, we don't lose all of our manufacturing capabilities and, and things along those lines. Who did the pitch on Shark Tank? My wife and I actually did the pitch in season six. It was the Veterans Day episode. We were in the tank for about an hour and 20 minutes. I think if you go watch the episode, it was like eight or nine minutes. 
the clips that you can find now on the internet are like four or five minutes, but it was, it was an amazing opportunity and we're grateful to Shark Tank for giving us the opportunity to do that. And what is the product? So it's interesting, we started making uh, 50 caliber bottle openers. That sounds really silly, but when you break it down, a lot of guys have never held a 50 caliber round in their hand. They, they've definitely never held one in their hand that had, have their name or their company logo on the back and one that can open their beer. So it turned out to be a phenomenal product. We sold over $20 million worth of the product. And like I said, I learned a lot about small business manufacturing and you know, learning to work with my wife, which you know, is, is a challenge in itself. But I think it made our marriage stronger. And I'm glad that my daughters got to see that because um, I, I know that the world is full of adversity. So watching their parents go through adversity, I think is a good thing for them. Why did you then decide to run for office? You know, honestly, I decided to run for office the same reason I decided to join the, the Navy the week after 9-11. I'm just really concerned about this country. I love this country. I think it's a phenomenal country. But I also think um, in many ways we've gotten out over our skis. I think we've forgotten um, and, you know, a lot of the ingredients that have got us here in the first place. And I just wanted to make sure that I did everything I could so that when my daughters you know, go through you know, school and come out and try and be, get a job, raise a family, that they have some of the same opportunities that me and my wife did and other Americans did before us. You have some Navy SEAL buddies yeah. here in Congress. Yeah, yeah, I do. What's your group like? It's, you know, um, it, it's really good because uh, when you come into an environment like this that's so massive and I feel like I'm getting lost every 15 seconds around this, this maze and it's just good to see other, you know, brothers of mine that, you know, I might not have specifically worked with in the past, but we all come from the same community. So we all give each other a hard time and, uh, you know, definitely we call it banter. I call it banter therapy. So just, um, you know, it, it just makes me, it just makes me feel like I'm home a little bit. Is there something you say to each other? Is there something that you do that's just between Navy SEALs? Yeah, it's just anything that you can say that insults your buddy. And, but it, it, I'm telling you, it's called banter therapy. It helps, it, bring, it lifts you up, and if the guys aren't giving you a hard time, they, that's, that's when you know that they might not like you. If they're giving you a hard time, you know that they love you and they care about you. You've been listening to interviews with eight of the nearly 80 new members of the House of Representatives. We'll have more interviews for you each day this week on the Washington Today podcast. 